Welcome to the 28th episode of Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, and joined by a recurring guest, not co-host, Zach Weinberg. Zach, how are you doing today? I am good. I am good. I feel like I need a pithy statement every time you ask me that. And I've, I know. At least you know it's coming. At least I have like a shtick that I open with. I'm not really sure how I landed on uh, landed on that, but yeah. Well, I, I think it shows my level of preparation in that I know this question is coming and I still can't think of anything. Yeah, yeah, we should have, you know, you can really keep people guessing every single time, but we did it. We, uh, we released, uh, I think somewhat begrudgingly on both of our parts, we released the Sam Lesson episode and I think it went about like I expected it to. I think two thirds of people were mad at us uh in some way shape or form a third were saying it was uh their favorite episode which i don't know what kind of uh masochists would want that as their favorite episode but um yeah it was kind of as expected i thought yeah <laughs> i have a very i have a lot of mixed emotions uh it was it was definitely one that i have still not listened to uh and i probably i wouldn't recommend it well. i've done it once yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's definitely frustrating to try and have a conversation about details and specifics without having the chance to talk. Uh, and not that I am like the world's most um, easy person to talk to, let's say, but it was definitely difficult as somebody try to have like complex topics uh, that we get through. So you know, I, when I, I made the comparison at the beginning of the episode, like, hey, you're going to this is going to be very similar to Biden Trump. And I did a really poor job moderating and I accept a lot of blame for this. And I will we will never release an episode that is like this again. That was like something to that effect is my preface. And my comments all weekend were like terrible job moderating logan like next time you should do a better job never release anything like this again and i'm like yeah but i said that at the beginning like I, you're st i i know that's what i did i i realized that right but what well, I and i think also like we made i think we make a commitment when we do any of these that like we're going to release it like i think yeah. Sam, for whatever reason thought that i was like i didn't want to release i was like that is nothing i honestly like release away i just thought people were going to be somewhat miserable listening to it uh because it felt miserable doing it and so i just assumed it would be horrible and not entertaining and uh it seems like it's it was bifurcated uh, he was he was very proud uh he he tweeted about it he wrote one of he, he posted it in the information he did like one of his little uh uh tweet like uh essay things about it um he was uh, responding all in the comments. He was very happy with uh, the performance, which which wasn't my reaction to myself. I don't think was your reaction to yourself. I don't think uh, I totally followed wh uh, why he was so pumped about it, but I, I, God bless him. I mean, you know, there's a self-awareness skill that you have to develop at some point in your career and I guess some people don't develop it as well as others. Uh, so you and I are both like, oh boy, that was not going to be fun to listen to. And Sam's like, crushed it. And so, <laughs> I don't, you know, like. I he also just... accused me of, of uh, or like implicitly said something about that. Like, I edited it. Uh, he was like, I haven't checked if it's edited or not. And I told him like five times, dude, I'm not. I promise I'm not going to edit it. And then we released like two hours of people screaming at each other. And. And he like still put in an implicit like 
assuming this isn't edited. And I was like, I mean, I promise you, it wouldn't have been two hours. That's the one thing I assure you is I I would have cut it down to like, you know, an hour and a half max, an hour 15 or something if I were to edit it. But yeah. Yeah, if we were ever, if there was ever a moment, it would have been that one. And I hope people realize we're not editing anything. Maybe Laurent is clipping it in the internet, but we're not editing it. Sometimes I will edit. I mean, we we, we have Justin who works with us, uh, who I will have like edit for interest, but I knew this one or like just to try to make it more compelling. And we'll like cut, you know, a two minute blurb here, a two minute blurb here. But I just knew this one was going to be so uh, controversial. And I sort of knew it was going to play out the way that it did. And so it just felt like any editing at all was going to, you know, make it look like I was trying to hide the ball or something. So I was like, oh, I guess we have to release this as is, right? I mean, look, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe there's the takeaway that it's, it's hard to like, seek the truth and seek facts about things when people have like a major stake in it. And I don't know, I don't have a stake in this game whatsoever. I just do this for fun. So I guess like people can get a little riled up when they're, uh, not reputation, but their money. I think the better way of saying it is like their money is on the line. I don't think Sam's reputation is involved in crypto per se, but definitely some money. Uh, so anyway, we'll try our best. Hopefully the next few of these to not have uh, Mike Tyson biting off my ear halfway through. Yeah. Wait, say something real fast. I want to test something. Just say something real fast right now. Right now. Nice. Okay. I I was able to mute a lesson I wish I had uh, back then. That, you know, that was my biggest takeaway in the structure is, I hadn't tested that feature yet before, but it looks like if I sign in as a host, I can mute other uh, guests. So See, this is the a- benefit of Riverside, whoever makes this software, of having real customers because you can discover features like mute by yeah. people having to actually use the software. It's a great process. It's called Not, product discovery. Now we, now we know. And in the future, so to all the comments that said we should never do another episode like this again, uh, now that I know there is a mute button that I can control, I assure you we most definitely will not. But yeah, uh, uh, we will We will uh, try to stick to more substantive stuff here. I guess one thing um, we did want to touch on, or I'd love to get your perspective on, is just like the state of what you're seeing in the market. You see more C, Series A, Series B than I do. We haven't done kind of a macro update. I talked to Josh a little bit about it last week, but what's kind of your purview of what's going on right now? Yeah, I would say, and it's not, there's probably more than this, but we're seeing, let's say, three themes, if you will. Uh, the first is that the the flat Series A, Series B is real. Uh, you know, I, I, we're seeing companies want to pad their balance sheet for a variety of reasons, and valuations have definitely reset for companies that have that have numbers. You know, they have customers, they have numbers. Um, so... Market is resetting. I think at the B, and we're even seeing it a little bit at the A, just in terms of valuation expectations for those. Is parents. it mostly from from inside people kind of doing extensions, little stubs, or are they net new investors coming in for the most part? A little bit of everything. I mean, definitely heavier on the insider round yeah. for sure. Or you know, the strategic you wanted to bring in that you didn't in the last round, and now you open it up. 
I don't think we're seeing like a full rationalization of pricing yet because we haven't seen the vast majority of the companies go out and fundraise because the ones that have cash are not doing it. So yeah. you're seeing like a little bit of trickle is very clearly valuation expectations are down. Really, I think for one somewhat simple reason, which is, you know, when you're underwriting high price series A and series B investments to outcomes that look like five, $10 billion market cap businesses, and those don't exist in that market anymore, you know, the, the, the macro like public market expectations are down. Okay. Well then your underwriting has to change and that's what's happening. Right. I think yeah. it's just simply a multiple reset. Our early stage team, by the way, uh, I was surprised to hear that it had flowed through as quickly as it had. Our early stage team said that they've seen prices down, you know, 20% to in some cases, 50% of what, you know, an 80 is now a $40 uh, million valuation or something, which I was surprised, I guess not totally surprised because like the end state of these outcomes have shifted, but um, the funds were raised at, at for a dollar amount to invest a certain, you know, uh, number of series A's. Like if you think about portfolio construction, I, I don't know how all firms do it, but a lot of them will say, hey, we'll do 35 deals in this fund and we'll average whatever, you know, 10, $15 million a deal and we'll blend up to 20 in some cases. And so we have a $500 million fund or something like that, right? And I guess people are just kind of shifting to, hey, you know, uh, and it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma where if anyone stays in the old mindset, then that's probably stays the market, broadly speaking, right? Uh, but I guess people are just kind of saying, hey, I'll either buy more or write less and have more companies in the portfolio. And so I'm kind of surprised it's flown through to the C Series A, I guess, as quickly as it has here in the last, whatever, six months. I think you're going to see fun life cycles go back to what they were. Yeah. You know, it used to be like a venture fund was, you know, three years or so, if not more, to deploy, two to three years, something like that. And then you were seeing things get deployed in like 12 to 18 months and We'll probably go back to longer deployment cycles because you know the round sizes will be a little smaller and a little slower personally the one area i haven't seen it play out yet is in the true like pre-seed seed valuations like when i was raising money for invite media this is in 2007 i'm pretty sure i, don't, I gotta talk to nat about this but like i'm pretty sure our post money on our seed round was like two and a half million yeah. Maybe three million, something like that. For, and, and then how you saw money, how much of the companies you give up or how much money you raise? Somewhere between five hundred thousand and seven fifty or so. Right. The round sizes were smaller too. Uh it was less competitive at the time. And then, you know, we were doing you started to see rounds like in the six post and seven post in the early twenty tens. And then eventually you were seeing these seed round. And I define seed really as like, you don't really have paying customers in any way, shape or form. And yeah. that's like, a, there's a variety of ways to measure it, but that's probably the best one, I think, or at least for me. And then you were seeing these like 15, 20, 22 on, you know, good ideas with good founders, but you've basically got nothing. And I think all of that is predicated on this idea that like, well, you make a bunch of progress and then you do 20 on 80 and there's the markup. And if those 20 on 80s are now 20 on 40 or 10 on 40 or 10 on 30, which is more likely these days, you can't do a seed round with that kind of failure rate at 16 posts. Like it just, the math doesn't work as a seed investor. The challenge I think is that a lot of seed investing is done by people who haven't been through an entire cycle and that math is not intuitive to them. And so, you know, your 6X seed fund becomes 2X 
very fast when your entry point price is like 20 po 20 post. So I have not seen it. I'm curious if your early stage team sees it, but well, I have not you, seen the seeds down. Well, you know what the thing is, right? If you think about a lot of these seed, pre-seed uh, funds have now, like the good ones have kind of crept up the, you know, 50 million plus, right? At least 40, 50 million. Some are at 100, 150, 200. And so if you think about it, like the, the point I was making earlier about just like the fun construction, I, I would have to imagine, like, let's take your example. You gave up 750 uh, and maybe it was like a $3 million value, whatever it was, sure. right? And now, or 25% of the company, and now uh, these funds are structured where they need to write $2 million checks, right? Instead of, and so that same round is now 6.7 or whatever it is to, to get 30% or 7 million, whatever it is, right? Does it really matter the situation that I guess you could talk yourself into the mindset that, hey, if this works, right, uh, this is going to be a low enough absolute valuation, even if it's a $7 million valuation, right? And now the round's getting done at or 12 or 15, right? And the next round's going to be, if they make progress, is going to be at 30 or 40 pre or something like that, right? Does it really matter when the ultimate outcome has gone from being 12 billion or 10 billion in these success cases to 5 billion? Like, where does it really matter that the valuation has creeped up a little bit more, right? And I would say, I guess it really matters if the Series A is in trouble to get done because there's too much compression there. But I guess you still have buffer, right? Now, when you're doing 20, million dollar valuations, $30 million valuations on these seed deals, you don't have buffer anymore, right? Like you're looking at a well, flat series A. Look, it only matters at the outcome. Like the A is like, oh, whatever, the A, the B, these are just like financing events. You're not selling. So all that really matters is how much money are you getting back when this thing has this liquidity in, you know, 10 to 15 years. So the rest, the A, and the, it's just a proxy for like what this might be at the end. And the best example I can give you, at least in my head, is if you did the round of 5 million post or you did the round of 15 million post, that's one third of the outcome. Like that's the difference between a 6X and a 2X right there in terms of a you know, if it's just one company. But if you're a seed manager, right? Like how many, how often is the, the 6X or the 2X a fun driver? I would say that like most of the seed managers. Oh, I mean, sorry. When I say 6X or 2X, I mean for like the overall fun, not on an individual deal. What drives it, what drives it is your 150X is now a 50X. That's the, that's the difference. And then because you only get like one or two of those in a fund basis, that's what drives the six X down to two. That that's really what I mean. I guess I would say that like the difference between if you hit a 50 X or a 75 X in a seed fund, right? Like it's probably going to be a good fund depending on size and whatever, but it's probably going to be a good seed fund in general. Right. I, I would think, and we'll, we'll see. But like, certainly if you're hitting a 250X or a 500X, like it's clearly going to be a good fund. I guess the the argument I would make is that the ball goes a lot further on the upside regardless. And so oftentimes one of the things that I, I don't think is has been true of late, but like one of the mantras when I originally got into venture was like, within a certain low enough absolute valuation, you're usually not wrong on price, right? And the, the rationale was like, 
you know, your return threshold almost never blended to uh, be like within a margin of what the fund success is. In, in a, as a basket across the fund, it can, and certainly as an asset class for LPs, it totally does, right? Like, it, 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 but any individual investment, I think that's why the seed people can probably talk themselves into not moving that much on price is like, hey, if you like it at five, you should like it at 10, right? Well, at- let's do like the math. Here's where I think it plays. So let's say like you have a $100 million seed fund, right? And the one of the downsides of running a seed fund uh, as a investor is that you don't make any money on the fees. None, right? You know, your $100 million seed fund is like a 2% management fee. So you've got $2 million in management fees. There's probably on a $100 million fund, three GPs, let's say, maybe two, but let's call it three. So you've got $2 million to spread across three people, plus some associates, plus overhead. So I don't know what the GPs are paying themselves, but it's not, no one's buying their Hamptons house on this fund. I'm not crying for them, but they're not making a ton of money on the fee. And then all of a sudden, what you get to at a certain point is like, if that $100 million fund is a 3X fund, right? So let's say it returns 300, your carry pool of the $200 million profit is 40 million bucks spread across you know, it's over 10 to 12 years you did okay and you gave up the opportunity cost of working at a really big place with a high management fee where you were making like 2 to $3 million a year. And that's that opportunity cost of being a seed investor versus going and working at like a growth fund. If that fund is not 3X, but if that fund is 7X, right? That's a $600 million profit pool of which you're splitting $120 million across three people. It actually ends up being a very, very big difference for individual GPs, the difference between a two to three X fund versus like a seven and eight. Oh, and totally. I think that's totally. where it matters. But, but I guess, I guess my argument would be any individual investment, it's hard to internalize like at the difference of five versus 10, you certainly want to play the game that's on the field and pay the fair price. Right. But I don't know. It would be really hard for me. I'm not a seed manager, and maybe this is why I'm not, is because I can't internalize this stuff. But it'd be really hard for me to talk myself out, knowing how fun construction kind of works. It'd be really hard to talk myself out of a deal at four versus six versus seven or whatever. And I realize it matters, but. Yeah, you're probably right in that range, like four post, eight post, something in that. 20 post. Yeah, for these deals. And I think that's where the compression is going to start to come from. It's going to come from the absolute crazy ones come down. And then that pushes everything else down a little bit. And, you know, no, no one's like crying at the end of the day here. Like people are doing perfectly fine. But yeah, the days of that, you know, 20 pre seed round, I think are hopefully gone. Uh, and we'll see what it rationalizes that. I just haven't seen it yet. I also think because the really good founders are not yet raising or they've been doing stuff very privately or quietly. So it takes, takes time. So we're a little dated on this topic, but one of the things uh, Zach and I had been uh, texting about was a story that the information had reported that I think um, has a broader, uh, I don't know, extrapolation that uh, at least he and I were texting about a little bit. So I thought it would make for an interesting topic. So uh, data robot is a Boston based, um, AI, artificial intelligence company. And over the course of the last couple of months, uh, they've been embroiled in some different scandals. Their um, their their CEO and co-founder, uh, Jeremy Atchin, uh, stepped down after uh, disagreements with the board. And, uh, and the COO at the time, I believe, Dan Wright stepped into the CEO 
uh, role. Um, what had been reported a few months ago was that uh, their, the CEO and a handful of other executives had sold about $32 million of um, stock while the company was at their peak valuation, which uh, was about $6 billion. Um, and so they collectively, um, the executives sold uh, and didn't offer it to the uh, the rest of the uh, companies, the rank and file employees that had been there for for a long time, I believe the those executives that sold had been there uh, eighteen months or or something like that, and uh, the CEO I believe sold about um, twenty million dollars, and uh, and then a handful of other executives uh, sold the balance, the twelve million. Uh, the The reason that they had sold was the board had granted uh, loans to the company or sorry, to the employees from the, the company for these folks to early exercise their options. And uh, this was done to repay uh, those loans that were given um, by, the, uh, by the company. And so they sold a little bit of secondary compared to their overall position um, that, uh, that, that allowed them to repay these loans. Um, this was done a few months ago that it was reported on by the information. It set off a, a total shitstorm within the company. Zach, I think you had maybe different uh, opinions than me about this this whole situation, or at least some some interesting insights. So we'd love to get your take here. Yeah, I guess. I mean, when you had sent it to me, and I read it, and then I had to reread it to make sure I understood what I think the controversy was, which was if I define this right, a bunch of senior executives at a private startup, essentially selling some of their equity, whatever equity they owned in like a secondary sale while the company was still private to some outside investor, might've been insiders or outside, I don't remember exactly, and taking some money off the table. Yeah. And, and, and just a point of clarification, it was an outside investor uh, and it was I don't believe it even went to their uh, bank accounts based on my reading of it. It went to repay a loan that was granted to them by the the company. And so they took out a loan to early exercise their options and they sold a small portion of secondary to then pay back that loan. Yeah. And you get your long-term capital gains clocks. Yes. To tech, clock, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and in a sense, like the controversy within the company was that only a small set of senior executives were able to do this and it wasn't offered to the broader population or the right. employee base. Right. Yeah. And my reaction was, this is happening everywhere. Why are we surprised in this? I, I, that was the thing I didn't understand. And it's not about whether I agree with this or not. And I have my thoughts on it broadly, but it didn't seem surprising to me because this is something that happens in some way, shape or form, typically with founders, but not always. It can sometimes be the senior execs where they're offered the ability to sell some of their equity to take money off the table in a private financing round. It's how you see founders of still private, but very large companies all of a sudden have a bunch of money to do angel investing, right? Like, where do you think that money came from? It's not like it's coming from their salary. Uh, it's typically because they were given some secondary. 
And part of the reason, just to justify at least one side of it for a second, not, and then I can maybe argue the other, but is that, you know, as an investor, you don't want the founder of the company worried about having like a little nest egg because you just wrote them a really big check and you want them swinging for the fences. So you want their risk appetite to be turned on. You actually want them swinging for the multi-billion dollar outcome. And what you do to give them that risk appetite is you let them cash out some. Like enough, enough, and everybody's enough is like totally arbitrary and made up, but maybe you let them sell five to $10 million, you know, something like in that range. I've seen higher when it was like a really crazy bull market where people sold like 20 to $40 million. Uh, but that's the general logic behind it. And I guess I was surprised that this was new to people because it's been happening all the time. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to justify it. Like I, I completely understand the employees take of like, if the founders are selling their common shares, like why wouldn't everyone else be allowed to do it? It's unfair. And like, yeah, yes, it's unfair, Uh, but it happens everywhere. So why did it, why did it become such a big deal as one company? I guess, I guess the, um, the distinctions I would draw here. And I think what led to the, uh, the outrage is one, the dollar amount was really high, right? 32 million, 20 for the CEO. Now they, uh, their their equity was obviously uh percentage was high uh, as such they needed a large amount to early exercise as a loan right the 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 maybe the more interesting and slightly more unusual part of this is that uh they were granted such a big loan by the company right uh too early exercise um so that's an interesting thing but i can understand when you're a um a CEO coming in, you're sophisticated and you want the ability to start the capital gains clock. And so maybe, you know, that's on the board for allowing all of this to happen, I guess. Uh, again, I don't have, uh, I've had companies that have done loans for executives as they've come in, right? And so I don't uh, judge it necessarily. Every situation's unique. Uh, but I would say that that was one uh was the loan is more of the um the unusual part of it the secondary i would say happens more the second thing is these these folks weren't here particularly long right and so more often when you hear the big secondary sales it's it's often a founder and i think that really uh at least the chief ai strategist or whoever stepped down he was like you're basically taking money out of the pockets of the people that actually built this business, who are the engineers that have been there for five, six years and ha- were not afforded the luxury to take chips off the table. And so I think it was like a hired gun team as opposed to the a hired gun team. They all sort of came over from App Dynamics together, I think, uh, to help run the business. And so that was part of it. And then I also think uh, outside of the the loans and the dollar amounts and the tenure, I also think what, what happened was it didn't seem like their performance, at least now in retrospect, I don't know what was going on at the business at the time, but their performance, they had misplanned pretty significantly. And so uh, I think that uh, at least the criticisms I saw were that the executives were provided this financial reward incentive uh, when they hadn't actually performed or met uh, the the expectations that they set out. And so I think, and then also the market, right? <laughs> In between when it happened and they were valued at 6.3, went down pretty significantly. And so 
uh, I, you know that if these employees hadn't uh, sold at been given the option to sell at 6.3, but there was a, a round going down at 10 billion right now, there would not be this vitriolic post uh, and people resigning, right? If they were now given the option to sell at 10. And so I think also the market tanking has led to a little bit of a, you know, the sour grapes behind it. Well, this is like maybe the more interesting takeaway for people and something that I've struggled with as a founder in the first two companies we started and, and a little bit in this new one I'm starting now. But the U.S. tax code is really not employee friendly. It's very founder friendly, uh, but it is not employee friendly. And it was never designed necessarily to solve this problem, but the consequences of it uh, are fairly negative for employees who join later in the cycle for, for this one like really kind of stupid reason, which is, and I'll try my best to explain the basics of it, but uh, when you get your equity, your ownership in a startup in the beginning, right? When the company is just being formed and you're maybe one of like the first five or 10 employees or something along those lines, and definitely if you're the founders, the IRS views the value of that company basically at zero. If you kind of give your, if you get your equity prior to the financing round, or if you only raise a little bit of money, you can basically say, look, this company is worth nothing. It has nothing. It has no money. And so as a result, when I'm giving myself equity, the gain, because I'm getting something, right? I get equity in this company. As a result, the gain that I received is so low that I don't, the taxes on it are irrelevant, right? If it's worth $5 or $10, so I pay a bunch of taxes, but it's really, I pay basically no taxes rather. And the benefit of that is that you now own the equity and your long-term capital gains clock starts ticking, right? Meaning that if in the future your company sells uh, and somebody gives you cash for your equity, you're going to pay long-term capital gains on that equity instead of income tax. And that's like a material difference uh, for a lot of people, depending on what state that they live in, right? If you don't live in a, a high income tax state like New York, it's even bigger, right? Because then you're basically paying exclusively federal long-term gains, which could be like 20, 25% or something. Uh, as an employee, if you join downstream, the reason you get options instead of like equity that vests over time is if you were to give employees equity at that time, the equity now has value, right? It has like real value to it. And so you would actually have to pay taxes on the equity, even though you can't get any money from the equity. So your employees would be liable for a tax bill, but not have any money. And so as a result, what we've kind of like worked around, if you will, in the startup ecosystem over the last 15 years is like, all right, we're not going to give you equity. We're going to give you options. And those options are basically like the chance to have equity in the future. It's a legal right to the equity in the future, but you don't actually own it, right? Because you don't actually own the equity, you just have an option. And it works except for that long-term capital gains clock. And that's where it breaks down, right? Which is that you don't actually own the equity. And so if somebody were to come in and buy you as the business or buy, buy the company that you work for rather, and then you, you're, you're, you exercise your options, you get your equity. Unfortunately, you haven't held them for the long-term capital gains 12 months. And so now you're paying like crazy high income tax rates, basically in some cases, like, you know, over 50%. And so that's why you see employees or sorry, executives who are coming in late, borrowing money to do the early exercise thing so that if this company were successful over time, they would be able to save like a whole bunch of money 
on taxes. And then they do all these like crazy cockamamie schemes that we just saw, right? Which is like they borrow money from the company to early exercise and they sell some of their equities. And it all comes down to this like stupid accounting issue related to like long-term gains versus short-term gains, which in a really weird way actually disincentivizes innovation because you want people to take risk. Like as an economy, as the U.S. economy, you want people to take on economic risk because risk creates in the aggregate innovation and productivity and as a result, reward. And we're actually like disincentivizing people to do it in the tax code. And that to me is like the more interesting issue in all of this, which is like, look at all the crazy hoops people are going through to just like shift their equity from short-term to long-term gains. And if we just solve this by saying, hey, actually, if you give people equity in this private company until they can actually get cash for it, there's no tax bill, right? You delay the tax or some, some version of this that allows that long-term gain clock to kick in. This problem somewhat goes away. I'm sure there's some other negative externalities I haven't thought about, yeah. uh, but that's the source of this issue. At least that's my impression. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, I guess, that's kind of implicit in this, which, uh, you know, you could say is very not fair. I think a lot of people would argue that, but is that um, not all employees are treated equally, right? And founders and CEOs and executives are granted not just uh, compensation, not just percentage equity, but also perks and benefits and types of things like this that they can negotiate that other people can't, right? Yep. And it leads to a bunch of societal, you know, uh, issues. It leads to different uh, economic outcomes at exit for a, a bunch of uh, these businesses. Is it Bared. Let me let me poke on this one. This is going to be the right wing side of of Zach, which exists in very limited places. Uh, but like, should it be fair? I, I would start with that question, which is like, there are reasons they're executives, right? Like they have better skills at certain things. They're more seasoned. So I don't think like fairness is necessarily the goal. I do think the issue is transparency. I mean, listen. I think the. The market determines what is yeah. market and what is fair, right? And so, or market and therefore what is fair. And so, does it feel fair when you've been at a company for six years and a CEO has been there for two or a CRO is making, you're an engineer and you've been there, you know, for, for five years and you're making 200K and the CRO is making 700K at OTE, like, that certainly doesn't feel fair because you're just you're building the product and he is just selling it. But somehow that has been decided that that is the market for these different talents and these different people. And so I, I think the the market has determined that that is the right the commiserate things that different people could could negotiate. Right. So yeah, I think like we and we should be comfortable with two things. One is that the market it's a private company. You can do what it wants. We want private companies to be able to do what they want because they can innovate in different places. And by the way, as an employee, you have the ultimate opportunity to change jobs. Like if you don't like how that company is working, you're not an indentured servant. Like you can get up and, you know, speak with your feet uh, and, and switch jobs. And so as a result, it's not, I would make the argument that it's not supposed to be fair and we shouldn't pretend that it's fair, right? Like senior executives and founders get better deals because investors view them as more important to the company. I think where the issue, and I agree with that, by the way, to a point, 
where there are clearly like people in a company who are just simply more important because they're better at their job and they have a skill set that's particularly unique. That's really the key, right? They're uniquely good at something. Where the issue stems, and this is a part I, I, I would agree with the employee base, is lack of transparency. Like this stuff is kind of done in quiet and secret and not disclosed. And that's the part that I think really is where the issue, leaving aside the fact that we should probably just fix this in the tax code, uh, it seems unfair to be able to do these things without, le without at least disclosing that they're happening, right? That people should be aware that this kind of stuff happens. And it's funny because in an acquisition scenario, right, when you get bought as a company, we had to go through this at both my companies because they both got bought, one, one by Google, one by, by Roche. And in both situations, I believe actually maybe just in the Roche situation, uh, when the acquiring company gives like golden handcuffs, they give retention basically to employees who are incoming, there's actually a disclosure they have to give. It's called like a 280G disclosure. I don't remember the exact legal phrase. I think it's 280G. Anyway, the point is like the money that's going, the ex excess dollars that are going to senior executives actually get disclosed to all shareholders. And since employees own equity in the company, they get to see the disclosure. Uh, and I remember actually at Flatiron, we were doing this. You know, we had a bunch of senior executives who were going to make quite a bit, you know, seven figure plus in retention compensation. Uh, and part of it was knowing we had to disclose it. Uh, you know, what does that conversation look like? How do we discuss this? What is the blowback going to be? What, it wasn't like good or bad. It was just a discussion that had to be had because of the disclosure. And I think that was actually like a really healthy discussion about like what's fair, what's not fair. It's like the New York Times rule of like, do you want to do something that would end up and maybe it's the information rule now. Uh, do you want to do something that ends up on the the front page of the information, right? Yes. Or for all your employees to know it. And there are, it should, it should be pointed out one. And I think people, this companies aren't democracies, right? Like we don't have all equal votes and making decisions. And, and two, there are other things, right? I don't know if you guys had this in this example, but like they will often, instead of just doing a, uh, a top up or whatever, they will make you revest shares that you, uh, you already had vested, right. As an incentive, as a executive coming on. Right. And so you might own 2% of the company and it sells for a hundred million dollars and you're not getting $2 million in your pocket day one. They might say, Hey, we'll give you a million dollars and we'll give you you know, uh, two fifty over the next four years, and then maybe we'll add another million on top of it for each, you know, whatever year you stay. And so, like, it could be a three million dollar package, but you're not getting all of that day one, right? And so, again, it sort of goes back to the point that like executives are treated differently in general, right, wrong, or indifferent. Look, this comes down to like there is a balance between you want to let the private markets do their thing. You want to let them innovate and compete and offer giant compensation packages to people they think are great and have it work and have it not work. And this is the beauty of the market, right? Which is it's going to try a bunch of things and some stuff works and some stuff doesn't. And that's what gets us to productivity gains. But when it does it in these like very opaque ways without disclosures and just like knowing what the basic facts are, then you get yourself in trouble. Then you get like scams and issues. And that's part of like this argument, not to always shy everything back to stupid Web3 stuff. But that was like the argument I was getting in with uh, Sam about like, 
buying equity in small little LLCs without information rights is like a completely insane idea, right? You need to understand the basics of these businesses. And that's why there are rules in place uh, in particular, as obviously as public companies of like information that has to be disclosed and checked. And even in private companies, right? Like private investors have information rights and the management team knows who has those information rights. Like those are important tools we have in the toolbox to kind of have some check and balances on back office dealing and scan. And it still happens too, but at least it's a check in place. I think a lot of this stuff ends up coming down to that. Like, I think you said, it right. It's the New York times yeah. disclosure issue, right? Like it's not about legal, not legal or right or wrong. It's just, it feels wrong when you do it in a sneaky, quiet way. And you, I agree. You should strive to like, we're going to do something that ultimately we would be interested and willing to defend in a public setting. Yeah. Well, everything inevitably comes back to Web3. I think we're winding down in our Web3 series. I, uh, yeah, I I think we have. uh, So next up here, you're going to hear a interview that Zach and I did with uh, Molly White from uh, Web3 is Going Great, a uh, entertaining blog about all the mishaps in the Web3 world. And then we have one recorded uh, that we'll release at some point with... uh, with Kyle uh, Samani from uh, MultiCoin, in which we talk about a bunch of stuff related to Helium and what Kyle believes and, and all of that stuff. But I think that might be it, short of, uh, I don't know, SPF or, or Chris Dixon or someone raising their hand or coming on. I think we've sort of, we've sort of made, the, made the rounds on the Web3 thing. There'll be more. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Someone's going to clip this and show it back to me when we have like 15 more of these. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I guess I would add Brian Armstrong to that list as well. We we have some uh, we have some titans of the industry that we would welcome on. Yeah. If somebody came with, hey, I've got this like really specific idea or thing I want to talk through and I've thought it through and I have a write-up, I don't need a write-up, but just something that shows that you've logically thought about it, that would be interesting and fun to talk through. I think for me as a founder and sometimes investor and whatnot, like the specifics and the details are always the most interesting as opposed to the, you know, liquidity is great in any context whatsoever. Do you agree? And it's like, oh, the abstraction. Yeah. Life has nuance, man. If you have those use cases, please uh, DM Zach Weinberg. Uh, we can, we can put his email in the show notes. I do not want those requests, but, uh, <laughs> if you have any specific use cases, it sounds like Zach's hunting for them. As long as you're comfortable with me posting them publicly. Okay. Well, uh, everyone, uh, Molly, Zach, uh, thanks, uh, thanks for doing this. I guess, Molly, do you want to give your background on how you got into Web3 is going great, which seems to be something that we, uh, yeah, we've been following along. And so we're, we're super excited to have you on. Um. Yeah, so I'm a software engineer, um, but I started Web3 is going just great as sort of a side hobby project uh, in the winter when crypto was kind of booming and some of the marketing was getting really out of hand, it seemed like. Uh, and I sort of noticed. We only started it in this, this past winter? Yeah, in December of 2021. You know, wow. Yeah, I sort of noticed kind of a big discrepancy between what I was seeing in, you know, the real world where projects were just like exploding and people were getting their money stolen and things are going really poorly. And then, you know, in the media, social media, you know, people were saying crypto is the future, Web3 is the future, it's going to replace the, you know, traditional web stack. Um, and so I, I started this site to try to sort of add an alternative uh, narrative, I guess, to the 
pile. I feel like uh, you were prescient in, in doing it at the time you did. I mean, December or whatever, end of end of uh, 2021 was uh, certainly the the peak of euphoria. Was there was there something that you saw at the time that just was the tipping point for you or was it just the volume of stuff that was going? I mean, you were you, I think we could say you were working at HubSpot right at the time as a software engineer, which is uh, is not Web3 related. And so were you just following this on Twitter and seeing all the money that was going into the ecosystem or what drove you to do it? Yeah, I was seeing it, you know, on social media and in the news a lot. You know, it was hard to kind of escape it. You know, it was like everyone had NFC profile pictures and people were talking about how you were dumb if you weren't putting your money into it. And you know, so it was really hard to avoid. And I started kind of digging back into it because, you know, I, I've been familiar with crypto for a really long time. And, you know, it was, it was sort of uninteresting to me from the beginning, just because I, you know, when I first learned about it, it was mostly either for people who wanted to buy drugs online or for people who wanted to, you know, sort of speculate wildly with their extra money. And I was like in college and didn't have extra money and I wasn't buying drugs online. So I kind of was like, Okay, not for me. Yeah. In college, you can buy drugs in a lot of different ways. No need <laughs> exactly. to do it online. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I was like, did something change? Like, now this is going to be the future of the web. Like, what did I miss? And so I sort of started researching it, you know, mid to late year. And then it was, I just kept seeing sort of all of these projects exploding and just going really, really badly. And it felt like, you know, you would hear all about it in one day and everyone would sort of be laughing at it on Twitter or whatever. And then like people forgot about it the next day and people were putting all their money into some other crazy, you know, Ponzi scheme or whatever. And it's like, didn't you just see the one that was just like that? You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, there were definitely a handful of projects that sort of all contributed to me being like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to put this together. <laughs> were you getting recruited? I assume as a software engineer at HubSpot, you get like a email on LinkedIn or something every day for a new a new job. I assume you're being recruited by some. To some extent, but, you know, I kind of just wasn't responding. <laughs> so I haven't sort of gone down that uh, rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. In December, you're like, G give me a month and you will stop recruiting me. <laughs> I actually still get recruited. <laughs> yeah. I still get DMs uh, from people being like, Logan, love the podcast, would love... Um, for you to take a look at my like Web3 NFT thing. And I'm like, ah, do you love the podcast? I like that as a compliment. And it's a good like intro thing to say. But I don't, I doubt you really love the podcast if you're, uh, if you're saying. Yeah, I get people message me ever saying like, hey, can you feature my NFT project on your website? And I'm like, you don't want that. <laughs> if you're featured on my website, something has gone very wrong. <laughs> Yeah, give, give it enough time and I trust you will find your way on my website, but it's probably not the way right. it looks to me, yeah. Did you ever consider taking any of the interviews to learn more or just to get the next layer? I didn't, no. I was pretty burnt out uh, just in general uh, last winter, I guess. And so I was like, I didn't feel like doing the interview circuit at that point. <laughs> uh, that content to me would be remarkable just to hear the you know the inside baseball of how the company is pitched and what information people are willing to share and what they're not willing to share and it's really hard to get that without being a candidate but if you're a candidate people will share quite a bit of info about the business as you go through the recruiting process especially as a software engineer. yeah i would think so we've gotten a handful i don't know if you have zach but i've gotten a bunch of former employees of of some of these businesses that have blown up reaching out to me uh being like you know 
you're spot on or you should talk about this, which was just a total rug pull or this person was super shady about stuff. Like I've gotten a bunch of those DMs as well. So I think, yeah, perspective or former employees are probably your best, best bet for some of this information. Well, not that I'm advocating for this, but, uh, maybe subtly I am. Uh, when you are a former or current employee, you're obviously like subject to non-disclosure agreements and things that you definitely should not break as an employee because you have liability risk. And I would never suggest anybody doing that unless it's like a true whistleblower case. As somebody who's being recruited, you have not signed any of those documents. And as a person who's like recruited hundreds, if not a few thousand employees over my lifetime, you know, companies share quite a bit of information in the recruiting process when it's competitive. And I'm actually somewhat surprised we haven't seen people go in, do the interviews, kind of understand what's really going on and use the information as a, I don't know, it's like a pseudonym blog post or something along the lines of like, here's what I learned in my XYZ. Well, wasn't there that journalist who like got a job at one of the big crypto exchanges or something like that? There was definitely like a journalist who did this. <laughs> well, but there, there's the line I just like wouldn't suggest people cross of like right. taking the job. That's a little, first of all, there's like some moral issues with doing that. And also you do sign a bunch of I'll go back to the legal issues. Uh, but as an interviewee, as long as you're like a credible person, you can ask lots of detailed questions. I used to have people at Flatiron ask questions about the business model and the revenue numbers and the customers. And I mean, maybe we were doing this wrong, but we definitely shared quite a bit of information as a company because we knew it was competitive. We were competing against Google and Facebook and Coinbase at the time and all these other groups for engineering talent. And the more that we could share the better it made us look in the interview process. Molly, what has the, uh, so what's the journey been like since, uh, since December? Like, did you have any idea of where this was going to go? And uh, I mean, you, you timed it right at the top. And so like, what's the evolution been or volume of stories to report on and and how has this changed since you know what your expectations were early on i definitely didn't expect it to become popular you know i've done a lot of sort of dumb side projects in my time that are just like for my own entertainment and no one actually really cares about them so when people started to like the site i was like oh that's cool um you know as far as the actual stories on the site I think they were more fun at the beginning because it was less of like people losing their life savings and more of like, oh, my God, this is the dumbest project I've ever seen. Or like, I can't believe they got away with this NFT scam or, or whatever it was. And they were sort of like funnier, I think, whereas now it feels like they're very sort of heartbreaking in a lot of ways because, you know, they're damaging. For every Gary V raises $50 million, we have like people on, you know, like suicide watch and Reddit forums and stuff for losing their life savings. Yeah, it really is. It's taken a dark, uh, a dark turn in a lot of ways. Are people sending you stuff? Do you get content? Like, Hey, did you see this? Like how much sourcing do you have to do? Yeah. People send me stuff, which is really great. It's helpful, especially when people send me stuff from like outside of the U S just because like, I don't always follow the right news sources or like, I don't even know to translate them to like get the content. Um, so yeah, I definitely, you know, I do a lot of the sourcing myself, but I do get a lot of sort of tips as well, which is really helpful. What's the most interesting one you've gotten sent that was maybe not publishable? Were there any of those where you're like, ah, I'm not sure I can publish this or 
the information is not public, anything along those lines. Yeah. How, how do you think about your editorial? I mean, you're not similar to us. We're not like journalists, actually. We're sort of like just LARPing as uh, interviewers. And so how do you think about the editorial line as well? Yeah. So I mostly try to cover stuff that has like already been covered elsewhere in news or, you know, at least is uh, can be confirmed with like, you know, a blog post by the company or something like that versus, you know, doing a lot of the real like speculation on, you know, oh, this company looks like it might be shaky or, you know, the the allegations that, you know, such and such is so and so, you know, I don't usually dive into stuff too, too far in that sense. Um, so I do get people who send me stuff that's like, you know, hey, I think X, Y, you know, Z exchange is going to not not the X, Y, X, Z NFT platform, but, you know, they'll say like, hey, I think, you know, this uh, platform is looking really shady or shaky or whatever. And I'm like, OK, but you know, until I actually can point at something concrete, you know, I can't just sort of say, I can't just really post that, you know, without any evidence. Um, so, yeah, I try to sort of keep it fairly, you know, by the book. Um, but people have definitely sent me stuff, you know, like even before the, um, some of the big exchanges uh, sort of like paused withdrawals recently, I was getting messages from people that are like, hey, I think, you know, um, Celsius is going to, you know, pause withdrawals i think they're insolvent um and so i was sort of just like waiting and watching for a while to see how those would go yeah it's it's uh it's a fascinating place to be in the in the ecosystem have you i assume i mean are you at the point now where you're uh reporting i don't know what you call it posting uh blogging whatever whatever the right term is uh like, does it lead, do you, do you feel the gravity of the implication with it going on for the number of hits you get? I assume when you post something, right, it, it probably drives market movements in some way, right? And so is it, one, is that starting to happen? And two, is that like a consideration of making sure all your facts are buttoned up and, you know, that it's reported in multiple places and all that? Yeah. So, um, I definitely try to be really cautious about that just cause like, I don't, feel like being sued <laughs> you know and you know i'm also my background for what it is in terms of this kind of writing is like with wikipedia editing which has a fairly high bar as far as like what you can use for a source um definitely higher than what i put in place on you know mentally put in place on the project and so you know that's kind of like my gut instinct anyway um so i definitely try to be careful i don't want to like accidentally slander someone who like didn't do anything wrong um, or like get the wrong company or something like that. Um, recently, I've started to notice occasionally, like I'll post something that hasn't really hit mainstream media or even like English language media. And then I'll see news reports start to come out. And like, I'll realize that people are sourcing Web3 is great, which is a really cool feeling that's happened, I think, twice now where I've really noticed that. Um, and that was like a big moment where I was like, oh, OK, like this actually is sort of driving the narrative to some extent. Do you get diligence calls at all? Like, hey, we're looking at this area. What have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I get. Uh, are you talking about from investors or are you talking about from? From anyone. I mean, probably investors, but it could be individuals who are looking to invest. It could be institutionals, like anyone who's just doing their their homework. No, I haven't really gotten that. I mostly get like media people who are like, hey, how did you find this out, you know, basically trying to find my sources so they can do their fact checking. Um, although I usually just put the sources right on the post. <laughs> I feel like Lerone also reached that uh, point now. I mean, he sort of kicked off this whole uh, 
this whole helium shitstorm, I feel like, I mean, Mario kicked it off with his, his public article, but then, you know, his, his tweet, uh, sort of set off the chain of events that now the verge is reporting on it. And, and Salesforce and uh, and Lime, Lime yeah. Bird or one of those are yeah requesting that they're like sending cease and desist to them and so I mean it's interesting I, I guess this is kind of a meta comment on the state of media and you know these social platforms and all that but it's certainly interesting how much of a, a shitstorm can just be set off by you know individuals with platforms yeah but i mean i also think it works in the other direction right like we see people pump crypto all the time so you know i think it's just so volatile and influenced by perception that that just happens yeah you, you mean you mean paris hilton maybe isn't doing the diligence on all of this stuff and it's just maybe market manipulation maybe she'll give me a call <laughs> i mean i've seen the more and more like we're starting to see people I think just read the details now, like uh, not commenting on the helium thing per se, although I think it's like a great, interesting example where at least my understanding and not, I've looked a ton into this, like all Iran did is just find a piece of an interview where the person had mentioned a statistic that was like tucked in a much larger article and said like, Hey, has anyone actually thought about this? Like one little fact that is included in a broader set of facts, like Sometimes I think it just comes down to reading things with a critical eye and asking the basic questions of revenue and adoption and churn, uh, as opposed to having to get all like hyperbolic about, oh, I don't believe in it conceptually. It's like, well, what are the, what are the details? That, I believe that's how the helium thing started, just looking at an article. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think he found the $6,500 a month in revenue number in some much longer report about helium and, and its business and was like, hang on a second, that is not the number we would expect. Mario at the Generalist was the one that wrote the long form thing about it. But um, now what uh, in your mind, uh, I know you've uh, or I've seen some posts that you're skeptical of uh, VCs in general. So thank you for coming on. But uh, I guess what role do you think as you sort of zoom out you had this like very specific view and, and uh, enough people had memed Zach asking about use cases, right? And specifically asking like, hey, what use case does this solve? As you sort of zoom out and think about the, uh, the broader ecosystem at play and like uh, who is culpable in, in all of this stuff? Because I think, I, I don't know, I don't want to speak for either of you. I think there's elements of this that are really cool uh, tech and I don't know exactly what problems are ultimately going to be solved. I think that there there could be some, not to the tune of twenty six billion dollars being invested into the category uh, like there was last year. But as you sort of zoom out, having looked at all of this, what role do you feel like um, the federal government not stepping in to regulate you know these things as securities far earlier versus? Uh, venture capitalists just uh, trying to make quick buck um, at the expense of retail versus, uh, you know, the, the people that are actually promoting these things. Like, who do you sort of place blame on for maybe the hype cycle getting a little bit out of control? Or is this just, you know, the an unregulated economy at work and people are going to be self-interested in their actions and find ways to make quick bucks? Yeah, I mean, I think... All of the people you just mentioned are sort of culpable. You know, I, I do put a lot of blame on you know regulators for not regulating where they could have. Um, 
or, you know, not um, acting as quickly as they could have. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, enforcement actions we're seeing right now are, are related to things that were happening in like 2017 and 2018. It's like, what? No, <laughs> worry about the, the ongoing stuff. Um, so I put a lot of blame there. I, I also put a lot of blame on, um, you know, media for really buying the hype in a lot of ways. You know, we saw some really, really uncritical coverage of a lot of the crypto projects, especially uh, last fall and last winter when things were really on sort of a bull run. Uh, and it was, you know, it was shocking, I think, the lack of like just asking the questions um, you know, considering more of a, a critical viewpoint on things, um, you know, we were just seeing, it felt like just puff pieces getting into the media, which was pretty surprising to me. And these were fairly reputable media organizations. I mean, this isn't like fly-by-night uh, crypto blogs or whatever. I mean, it's fairly reputable uh, organizations that wrote, you know, fairly... Uh, pieces that lack substance in terms of like their critical thinking. Yeah, I mean, you know, you sort of expect it from some of the crypto blogs that are just sort of, you know, mouthpieces for various crypto projects. Um, but it was, you know, mainstream, you know, highly respected news publications um, that were just not doing any fact checking of claims. They were not, you know, trying to take sort of a neutral viewpoint. Where they did try to take a neutral viewpoint, it was sort of like a both sidesism thing where they were like, well, it might be a huge scam, but you could get extremely wealthy overnight. And it's like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it was sort of I was really surprised to see that in some publications that, you know, I normally would trust. It's hard, right? <clears throat> it's a very like technical pitch wrapped in what is perceived to be like very like an innovative branding. Web3 is some of the best branding I've ever seen wrapped around like a very technical pitch that has a lot of jargon and technical terms that if you're not from the industry, it's really difficult to even know what question to ask in the first place. So I don't necessarily think it surprises me, although I'm surprised, I guess, that they would write anything at all, uh, as opposed to like, you know, at least doing a little bit of work, but that's probably my guess. Like, it's just difficult for a normal reporter to get into the weeds here. That might be true, but I also think that, you know, a lot of these publications have the resources to find someone who is, you know, very technically savvy or is sort of an expert in the field. Um, I think in some cases they tried to do that and they ended up getting sort of the people who are working for these companies or who are, you know, running these companies uh, telling them, you know, yeah, blockchains, technically they're great, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I do still place some blame on them. I, I think you're right that it is tough sometimes for journalists to really picks for the details, but um, I think they could have done a better job. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the best point, right? Which is like most people who have some credibility or sophistication in the area tend to be the ones involved in the area. And as a result, you know, financially incentivized to, to promote, let's say. Yeah. Uh, I could be a whistleblower or I could be a rug puller. Like one makes me zero dollars, one makes me right. very rich, right? It's like, you know, very perverse incentives. Yeah, it's tough. Like, the, you learn about it by participating, and then when everything is going up and to the right, which it, ha it did for quite some time, you don't make any money from being a bear in a bull cycle. And so, like, who's really there to provide the thorough, detailed information that is critical? And now that the tides have turned a little bit, not nearly as much as I think they will, but like a little bit, 
you're seeing more critical voices, yours included, at least just saying like, hey, if you ask some of the basic questions, like it's not even about, you know, I don't think this is going to work under any circumstance on the extreme end of things. It's just the simple one of like, well, why would somebody use this? And what happens after like six months? Yeah. But I do think that, you know, when there is a situation where there isn't a strong financial incentive created by, you know, the ecosystem itself to be skeptical or critical of the ecosystem itself, you know, the person whose job it is to do that is the journalists. And so I was sort of unhappy that there didn't seem to be that many that were really doing that job. I actually have been impressed. Uh, There have been a handful of people that have been I think are true believers and have been really um, happy and positive about the criticism that the industry has been getting because they think they're getting wrapped up in all this grift, right? And they they genuinely believe there's core principles here that they want to espouse and that all these other people are uh are just trying to make a quick buck on this and so i i actually like the whole have fun staying poor and like not gonna make it rhetoric and the 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 people that block incessantly online uh from engaging in any discourse and and narrow their bubble even more um i i realize that maybe some of them feel especially right now that there's like some level of of uh witch hunt going on trying to like destroy what they're what they're doing and i i get that sentiment but uh you know what is it light is the best sanitizer or something like if you this is the perfect time if you're a genuine believer in all this stuff engaging in these conversations and calling out the bullshit that exists feels like uh feels like the i don't know the most important thing to be doing right now rather than getting angry and blocking people uh that that just feels not very constructive yeah i would think so <laughs> i mean part of the part of the challenge with that by the way is like this idea that the speculation is part of the product you know there's like that case that's been made by a few vcs out there that says ah yes but this is just like a different way of building an initial user base where you don't have to spend money on marketing because the speculation does it for you. It's the Axie Infinity case, right? It's like, it's only a Ponzi scheme if we can't run far enough to turn it into not a Ponzi scheme, right? Yeah, it's like making this excuse of like, ah, actually the speculative nature is just like saving on marketing expense as opposed to just like a speculative bubble, which is a very clever... I mean, the people branding this stuff are just so good uh you have to untangle some of these ah it's just a better user acquisition channel and you're kind of like well that makes sense at a high level like can you explain user and acquisition and then you realize like oh, okay you just wrap speculation but sounds really great on paper it's hard when you believe i think that that speculative nature of the coin or token or whatever is part of the product like you have to believe in this because it is a core part of your strategy to grow the initial user base is to use the speculative nature of this stuff as part of the hype. And so hence the like ridiculous phrasing, unhappy to stay, <laughs> whatever. I don't even really follow all the phrases, but the same idea of like, it's this general theme of like, right. you're missing out. Yeah. That's it, right? You're missing out. And the part of it is like, you can't do your missing out on a product where 
then you have to go and like use the product and make sure you want to pay for it. But it does work on a coin or speculation, and then it becomes part of the psyche, and eh, it's just all wrapped, yeah, wrapped it's, together. It's this very weird situation, too, where like if you're running a business and you are trying to get initial users and you're spending a lot of money to do that, like it sucks if the business fails and you've wasted all that money and it just doesn't pan out. But with crypto projects that are doing it the way you just described, you know, it's not you that's losing the money. It's the people who are buying this token. You know, it's usually often retail investors who are losing that money. And it's sort of weird that people have, you know, convinced themselves that that's just sort of a cost of doing business. Yeah, it's funny. He did the, the rhetoric I, I like. I mean, this is just, again, back to Zach's point about the wrapping and marketing on this stuff. It's like Web2 companies, you built the product and then figured out how to sell it to and got users. Web three, you get users and then you figure out the product. It's flipping it. It's on its head, which will lower user acquisition costs over time. And I'm like, that sounds actually really interesting, right? Like that sounds like a good idea. Get your users first and then just, you know, sell them whatever. Right. But then you think about it for like more than 10 seconds and it's like, actually, does that, does that really hold in most use cases? And no, it doesn't like. People want to come for something and then they stay because of a product, right? Yeah. I talk about like community driven, which sounds awesome. Everybody wants to be part of a community. And then like maybe 12 months ago, we were making fun of WeWork for community adjusted EBITDA or whatever the thing is that he was selling. And like, did we just, did we forget about that in the last 12 months? So it's, it's the, yeah, the storytelling and the wrapping is, is like very, very impressive. And just this idea of like, I know this is going to sound so ridiculous, but three is bigger than two, right? Like web three, it's just, and so it implies iteration and next generation and the third version of it. And for anybody in the, like, I guess, technical industry, you know, that it's, it doesn't mean anything, but somebody outside looks at it and goes, well, this is the, this is the third web I thought, right? Like it's web three, it's not web two, as opposed to what I would describe it as is just like, it's really web crypto which has nothing to do with two or three. There's no number involved here. It's just like a totally different thing onto the side, but the branding of it makes it feel... Yeah, I would agree with you that the marketing has been pretty phenomenal around Web3 um, and, and crypto more broadly. Like, they've done a really good job of making it feel like people, you know, if they don't get on board or they don't at least, you know, uh, accept the idea that crypto is a good thing, they might be you know, old fashioned and, you know, they'll get left behind and they'll sound like, you know, a fool in five years or something like that. What, what, one of these concepts and I brought it up and I, I actually have to admit that I, I waver back and forth on this issue because, you know, there's some like libertarian uh, pieces, I guess, of my brain, not that I am a libertarian by any means, but there's just like some pieces that I find interesting at least. And we had this conversation, I guess is not released yet with, with Kyle from um, Multicoin. Uh, of this idea that like adults should be allowed to invest and lose their money in the way that they want. Uh, and that like big brother government is not supposed to be making, they're not supposed to be there to protect us. Like we're adults, you have your own agency, you make your own decisions. And it always comes back to this balance of, we had this conversation before of the coins as like an investment vehicle, which are totally unregulated and anyone can buy them almost at any point. And then the inverse of this, which is like startup equity, right? And startup equity is actually fairly regulated about who can and buy it. You have to have a certain sort of income and assets. 
Uh, and that's always brought up as like the counterpoint on this. Uh, and yes, there's a lot of people losing money, which is sad. You do also have to admit that they are making their own choices. Uh, I guess I would be curious how you shake out on that issue of, you know. Yeah, I mean, I am also actually probably more split than people might think on that particular issue. You know, I I don't love that, you know, the, the idea of like, oh, well, only accredited investors should be able to, you know, do whatever it is, crypto or, you know, options trading or whatever it might be. Um, you know, because then it's like, okay, only the people who have a lot of money can, you know, have access to these financial products and that feels unfair. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we're seeing people who clearly, you know, should not be making these decisions um, doing so. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't love the idea of the government saying that like, okay, you know, a million dollars or more in assets and then you're allowed to do whatever you want. But otherwise, you know, you're stuck with these other things. And I think, you know, I think to some extent crypto has capitalized on that already. Um, you know, you'll see a lot of I've seen when I've been reading the Celsius letters from people who are putting money into Celsius and who are writing to the judge now in the bankruptcy case. There are a handful of people who said something like, you know, I just wanted to invest like the rich people do. You know, I just wanted to um, have access to these higher yields that, you know, I don't get access to because I'm not an accredited investor. Um and crypto is really sort of uh, taking advantage, I think, of that sentiment that, you know, we'll let you take these risks in, in exchange for higher returns, just like rich people do. Or we'll let you, you know, uh, borrow money to speculate on crypto, just like rich people do. Um, and so, you know, I, I do see the flaw there. But on the other hand, I think that there's just an enormous amount of uh, information inequality happening with these crypto projects where they are not required to even be transparent. You know, for I think in order for people to, you know, basically in order for us to have the system where it's just let adults be adults, let them lose their money if they want to. Um, I do think that there needs to be some, you know, base level of transparency of, you know, um, enforcement around like truly criminal operations and things like that. And then, you know, if there was, you know, basically risk disclosure and things like that, like I could see the argument. Um, but I'm, I, like I said, I, I sort of go back and forth on it too. That's where, if you go look at, like, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I've seen it reported, like the demographics of who's heavier weighted to crypto, uh, or, or, or the economics of who's heavy or weighted to crypto, it does you to, uh, less, uh, represented groups. Right. And that's what I think is particularly tragic about everything that's happened here. Um, I guess one. One last uh, one before before we let you go. What's been the most interesting story that you've reported on or uh, or kind of had on the the website that brought the most uh, zealotry backlash to you? Uh, any interesting anecdotes or pushback that you've gotten on any um, story? I think honestly, the ones that get the most backlash are ones where there's discussion of like social issues within crypto, where, you know, I will highlight like some, you know, sense of bigotry. I think within the community, there was a whole issue with the guy who was um, part of the ENS Foundation who like said some pretty offensive stuff. And then, they, you know, we're trying to figure out whether to kick him out. And people were very polarized on that within the crypto community. Um, and so those draw kind of a lot of uh, pushback, I think. And then I think any of the ones that question some of the sort of plausible deniability around, you know, um, references in crypto project to like racist uh, memes and stuff like that, people hate 
reading about that, it seems like. So those get the most, you know, those are the most like hot take Twitter posts, basically. Um, and then the other ones where sometimes, you know, there are, I de- there are definitely like crypto communities that are more um, hostile than others, you know, around different tokens. And so if you like poke the wrong bear, you know, th- there are specific crypto tokens where you will get the sort of zealot community in, you know, DMing you and or, you know, telling you how stupid you are. I'm asking for a friend who uh, might be named Zach. Like when, when there's a big backlash to something like that, what do you actually do? Do you just do you mute your Twitter for a day or two? Do you do you just not engage? Do you engage? Like what what do you actually do when there's uh this uh, avalanche of online uh hate coming your way? I usually don't engage with it too much. Every once in a while I sort of can't help myself, especially if people say something really dumb. Um uh, <laughs> it's hard to resist that. But yeah, usually I don't engage um, or I'll just try to like clarify if if people have like misunderstood something in some cases or. um, But yeah, in general, I think a lot of those people, especially when they're like replying publicly, they sort of make fools of themselves. And it's like not that much me adding to that is not really going to help anything, especially and especially when it's, you know, the really sort of uh, zealot types it's not like i'm going to change their mind you know it's not like responding to them on twitter they're gonna be like you know what that's right you know maybe i am being unreasonable so it feels like mostly it's a waste of time yeah the key is you only engage with the ones that have monkey pictures for that's the those because you know they're real and clearly not a bot uh and that's where you get the most roi of your time so that's my advice I tend to retweet if if anyone says anything that's like really uh, offensive and like to the point it's humorous. I tend to retweet them at least for a little bit of time, just just let other people kind of share in that. But uh, yeah, those were the best. Where people are like, "Who's this idiot?" I'm like, "All right, cool. This is going to be that's a fun one to engage with because you know you're not getting anywhere, and at least you can have like some entertainment value of it." You know, that, those ones I, I always love, especially when they're like direct personal attacks. It's like, okay, we could have some fun with this. And my, my favorite, if I, no, I don't have the time anymore to do any of this stuff was to just like, <laughs> just like a, really agree with them, you know, for someone to come out and be like, yes, this point you're trying to make is totally right. And here's why it's right. And you kind of like replay it back to them. And while you're doing that, you, you Clearly it's wrong. Like as you walk through the logic of what they're trying to argue, it's that same idea of like the best argument against somebody is just to understand the bull case from their perspective, even better than they do. So that when you can say it out loud, people realize like, oh yeah, I guess it doesn't sound nearly as good as I thought to to know the details. And I get a lot of people who assume that I like don't know anything about crypto or, you know, blockchains or whatever. And so every once in a while, if I'm feeling particularly punchy, I'll just be like, wait, what's a Bitcoin? You know, like, can you explain? Wait, I don't understand. You know, and that really, they'll they'll usually go for a while before they realize. I mean, honestly, yeah. it's a great tactic of like, wait, so how does helium work? Just just make them waste their time, right? That's actually, yeah. It's so many arguments have been won over Twitter that uh, just really make them make a compelling argument back to you that's going to change your mind. I mean, just asking somebody that, that, this is probably just a good tactic of life in general is somebody pitching you some idea that they love. I mean, the first question is, all right, well, cool. How does it work? How does it work today? 
Right. Where does the yield come from? That's the that's the big question. <laughs> uh, well, Molly, thanks for doing this. Appreciate you uh, you coming on. Uh, this is this has been fun, and uh, yeah, keep up the the good work in spite of uh, in spite of the pushback or hate you might get online. I think uh, it's nice to have a single forum that highlights all this stuff together. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So that'll do it for the 28th episode of Cartoon Avatars. Thank you to Molly White for coming on. Thanks to uh, Zach Weinberg, as usual. Uh, Appreciate everyone listening uh, and bearing through uh, another slight variation of of crypto topics, um, as well as uh, I'm glad we're able to hit some different, more broader broader stuff with Zach. I I hope we're reaching the tail end of some of these crypto things. Uh, As as you heard from Zach, I think maybe he'll like some more, but if anyone has a line into SBF or Chris Dixon or Brian Armstrong, I think that's our our wish list at this point. So uh, please feel free to to send those our way if so. Um, Thank you to everyone for listening and for all the support uh, and uh, some of the outrage over over last week's episode. Um, Look forward to seeing everyone next week on episode 29 of Cartoon Avatars. Thank you.